I talk to you for a second? Excellent. We're, well, not live, but live. The two of us talking. <laughs> yeah. Here we are talking about coaching and I'm here today with uh, Tessa Dotwell. Uh, Tessa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Yannick. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you today. I, I know I say that a lot, um, but I'm particularly excited to, to this one. And this is also something I say a lot. But the reason being that uh, we started connecting about uh, you researching a uh, sense of identity in coaching, uh, particularly around transitions into retirement. And uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember, it was quite a while ago that we connected and said we wanted to have a conversation. Um, yes. But it's certainly topics that excite me because I meet that in my coaching a lot, not just in transition into retirement, but transition generally and the sense of identity uh, just being so relevant and so mm. crucial underneath many of the decisions that coaching clients make in their work. So Definitely. that immediately got me excited. When you said you'd good, uh, you've done some research into this, uh, I got extra excited and <laughs> now we're sitting here talking. I know. It was probably about two years ago. Actually, I, I, the reason I reached out to you was I was looking for candidates for my research. And I thought an That's existential coach would be an ideal person and probably got lots of people who are going through retirement. So, uh -huh. yeah. That's why we connected. I remember. Yes, I thought you got some got some research candidates uh, at the time. I remember at the time I was yes. absolutely swamped and I would have <laughs> loved to take part. But I, I hope I got you some people. Oh, yeah. No, I did. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we before we get into that, uh, I'd love to just kind of put a frame around uh, where you're coming from into this. Mm -hmm. um, a, a question that I I love to ask at the beginning of these podcasts often is, uh, well, what do you tell people at a dinner party or like when people say, oh, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Well. For a long time, um, it was a very different job. I was um, heading up a, a logistics. Um, Uh, company. So I was a, a, an account director and I used to run the warehousing and logistics. And um, then I was introduced to coaching when I was in the senior team. And um, this was about 10 years ago. And um, I had a team of about 500 at the time and I cascaded um, what I'd learned on, um, I did my ILM uh, level um, five. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I cascaded what I learned to my team and it was electric it was absolutely fascinating and i couldn't i couldn't quite believe it we were already getting really good scores anyway on all of our performance but then they just got kind of world beating um and um i just thought there's there's something amazing in this and it wasn't just the performance but it was the energy and the enthusiasm from my team and they would go away at weekends and develop products to come in and make um their work life better um, so it was just lovely to see that real energy and enthusiasm. So uh, the first opportunity, I left um, uh, corporate world um, and took my master's at um, Oxford Brooks. Um, and since then, I've set up two businesses, one where I work um, individu with individuals who are going through transitions and the other where I'm working with two colleagues that I met on the mm -hmm. MA and we are working with corporates, executives, and we're doing for every one piece that we do with them. We are also um, offering something to a cause for free. Mm -hmm. So we've got oh, that great. kind of balance. 
So yeah, so North 52 is, is, is taking up most of my time. So we're one year anniversary on Friday it was. So all right congratulations yeah. thank you <laughs> yeah so i i'm i'm a bit of all things at the moment mm -hmm. so tell us about the coaching angle that comes into your work because there's there's a lot there that uh, has a lot of potential for having these kind of conversations i'm sure you've had a lot of these conversations uh tell us a bit how you how you bring that in so in terms of coaching i'm very fascinated with transitions i guess because when i came out of corporate life i found that quite um a difficult transition and the whole sense of identity piece, I'd actually been quite invested in my work. So when I left and people asked me, what do you do? I didn't know how to respond and I wasn't sure who I was anymore. And I felt like what I've experienced by talking to people who went to retirement, that whole experience of not knowing who I was, I experienced when I came out of corporate life. But what happened and got me through was that, um, that I knew that I wanted to go into the world of coaching. So it was kind of reforming that coach identity. Um, took, took probably about a year to do that. Um, but now, obviously, I'm very comfortable in that skin. But work pref my preference is to work with people who are going through big life transitions because it, it's, it's a comfort zone for me. And I really understand it well now. Mm -hmm. having been through it, but also researched it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Um, so you have your own, do you have your own coaching practice? You've yes. researched this and uh, tell us a bit about your, your style, your perspective on coaching. Uh, like uh, how did you train? Is there a particular school of thought that you follow or what, what informs your coaching practice? So um, my training, as I say, I did a master's at Oxford Brooks and oh, they, they very much evidence-based practice is, is central. Um, and in terms of a particular school, which is why I reached out to you, is I'm very interested in existential coaching. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love the, um, the power of um, thinking about those existential anxieties and how that can really kind of boost you in your, in your current present day thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so I, depending on my clients, I will, if I can, <laughs> Um, go down the the route of asking some some deep and meaningful full questions about their existence um, to to really prompt that kind of focus on on today and how they can move towards where they want to get to. So definitely feel that that's probably the area of coaching that informs me most when I'm talking about transitions. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, it's am it's amazing how people try to keep work and personal life very separate when their sense of purpose and value and meaning in their existence i don't i don't think it's in, i think it's inseparable from mm. what we do for work and yet there you know there's this real effort to put this divide up mm -hmm. definitely and and i think that that's what confuses people i think when when work ends and um it's just all kind mm. of personal life and if they haven't really thought that through and not had those kind of goals in there outside of their work life yeah. it's really kind of unsettling 
Yeah, who am I without yeah. the thing that used to define my life for, exactly. you know, probably more than eight hours a day, you know, yes. a sense of status, there's so much involved. And uh, especially during the pandemic, I've had that in my coaching, certainly a lot, that people mm. were either sitting at home on furlough, or they've lost their job, or they've lost their entire industry. And they're thinking, who am I now sitting mm. in this void? Mm. And you, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, and you, you see this with um, with people whose roles are really well, um, you know, that, that mean um, that their lifestyle is their role. So mm -hmm. people like doctors or priests, mm -hmm. where they're really embedded in their role, and people in the community see them as the doctor, the the priest, um, then they find that really difficult to disengage um, and move to kind of life without that badge. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you started your research with a quote by Kierkegaard, which um, is a uh, popular existential philosopher, one of the, like the first who wrote about this kind of uh, perspective. And mm. I just wanted to read it to people. And I'm curious why you started this or used this to set the scene. So maybe you can give it some context and see a few more words. Mm -hmm. uh, the quote goes, the greatest hazard of all, losing oneself can occur very quietly in the world as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any other loss, an arm, a leg, five dollars, a wife, etc., is sure to be noticed. Yeah, I really like that quote because it, it, for me, it really emphasized that sense of how important that loss was, that, that sense of loss. And, and it really captured that kind of deep, loss that people feel mm. and it really is it's quite um quite unsettling and quite uncomfortable and i think i go on to use other quotes like walking i think someone says it's like walking off a cliff this sense of helplessness so you know it really is quite a deep feeling that people have and i think he captured it really well um mm. in sort of saying you know it really is one of the most dramatic losses that you can feel um and just really to raise attention that, um, you know, this transition to retirement is actually quite quite a serious life chapter. Um, and for people to really take it quite seriously, because my experience has been that certainly among my some of my friends and colleagues, they just haven't thought about it, deliberately mm -hmm. haven't thought about it. And I, I guess it's just kind of bringing it into focus as something that really we should all be thinking about. Yeah, the the quietness of it is a really interesting one to me because um, often when people talk about an existential crisis and when we lose our jobs or when you know there is a significant transition, could also be any significant ending. Could be ending mm -hmm. of a relationship or ending of a decade. You know, around birthdays uh, are mm -hmm. sometimes such a transition. Yes, uh, we always imagine this as this big bang, as this big crisis, as this thing that hits us in the face, and now we're falling. But actually, I think more often than than not, uh, it's it comes uh, creeping in. It comes yes. very quietly, and all of a sudden, the day is here, and we're no longer working, or you know yes. something has changed. Relationships don't often end with a blow and an incision. You know, often relationships end over time, and if we don't pay attention to it, rather quietly, all of a yes. sudden we realize something has changed, and it's not like it was anymore, and something has been lost. And mm. then, and then there is an incision where there is a decision that we're no longer working together. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think, 
I think, yes, the quietness was 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 a lovely quote because exactly as you say, I think people that there's there's research that says that whole process can take about a year and 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 then noticing where it you know what that you've lost your sense of self is really quite quite a slow process and then mm. it can take a long time to mm. really re-establish that. Yeah. So, so tell us about the process as you've experienced it or as you've seen it in your coaching or as it emerged through your research. There, there seems to be something that perhaps coaches can use to be aware of what's going on or something that coaches can learn when they support somebody through this kind of transition. Yeah, well, it was very interesting because I originally was going to look at some of the models and see how they could apply or not to my research. Um, so I looked at some of the um, you know, change models and some of the um, people like Bridges, um, seeing whether there was this kind of pattern of endings, neutral beginnings, see if that applied. And what was quite interesting is, although that did apply, what was very different with retirement is there was this, this phase that um, Procrasta and, and uh, De Clementi have mm -hmm. in the kind of addiction work that they did, um, that there was this pre-contemplation phase where yeah. people knew they were going to retire and they had this kind of opportunity to choose whether to think about it or, or to not think about it. So whereas I think Bridges, there's, there's much more a reaction to a change that happens. What I sense with retirement, it was um, there was a sort of step before that mm -hmm. where you have this opportunity to think about how you were going to be and what you were going to do post-retirement. Right. Can I, can I just pause there mm. or go a yeah. little bit deeper? Because first of all, I just wanted to underline the importance of having a choice to think about something or not. Mm. Um, um, the uh, stages of change model uh, starts with pre-contemplation. And I, I remember the first time I, I found that, uh, come across it, um, it, it seemed to me as if that's the stage where you don't think about it. You know, because it's pre-contemplation. In a way it is, but I think mm. it's so important that you present it as there's a choice to think about it or not. Because I yes. think we'd like to push that out of our awareness because it's uncomfortable to think about a big change. And yes. so a lot of people, it takes a bit of courage to think about something that is a big change. Yes, no, so definitely. If you could say a little bit more about just maybe just um, um, a brief summary of what the two change models are about, because I, I think people who are listening to this are probably like, what, uh, De Clemente and who? <laughs> and like, uh, and yeah. for us, it's uh, it's basic change. Like we come from an evidence-based coaching approach. We're like, oh, of course, we are uh, familiar with change models. Um, yes. But I think a lot of coaches are not. So I think it might be really valuable to just kind of lay them out briefly. Yeah, so um, I, I always get this name. Is it Procasta and, and De Clemente? Yeah, that's yes. it. Yes. So they looked at people who were going through addiction um, and they looked at basically what, what happened to, to people regarding their approach to changing and to um, moving away from their addiction. And uh, they actually came up with a cyclical model because obviously a lot of people with addiction do go back through that cycle again. Um, but again, it starts with this phase of pre-contemplation where we've just said, you know, there's a choice to, to, to think about it or not. Then you go on to contemplation. And then actually the stages do 
quite um, mirror what, what Bridges has got, which is basically this kind of um, ending um, phase where you kind of recognise that you are going to put to bed your your prior kind of addiction in, in, in that, that case. But um, in Bridges' case, he actually looked at it from a, um, from a business point of view. And when uh, businesses are going through transformation, there's a conscious decision that we're going to move on from where we were. So that's kind of the endings piece. Mm-hmm. Then there's this neutral phase where they talk about kind of being in limbo, where you kind of like people are perhaps not um, – that their minds haven't quite engaged with the new system, but the new system might actually be in place. So perhaps the company has changed its name. You've all got a new IT system. All the kind of functional things have happened. But inside people's minds, they're still kind of wedded to the old way things were. And they're not quite into the new company as, as it's kind of perhaps taking shape. So there's this kind of no man's land where they're kind of neither the old company nor the new company trying to get used to that phase. And then there's the beginnings where they start to accept, you know, the, the new phase and engage um, with with all the changes um, and feel more comfortable with the change in themselves. So going back to the addiction model, that's essentially what happens. You know, they, they change from being, um, you know, in an addict phase to moving out into having a, a different, healthier lifestyle. But then again, they've got that choice then as mm-hmm. to whether they continue on that great path or they don't go back to addiction. Yeah, that's the that's the most important phase of any change model, I think, is yes. how do we maintain it? Uh, yes. One of my early lecturers always joked that, oh yeah, make quitting smoking, it's a change that's very easy. I make it 20 times a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. <laughs> so maintaining a change, that's, that's where most people struggle and most people yes. don't really um, um, succeed. And then they yeah. flip back into the cycle. Yes. Yeah, very common. Yeah. I imagine that to be different with retirement. Yes, you haven't got a lot of choice. <laughs> well, actually, <laughs> nowadays, nowadays, um, the, the, the transition to retirement is a lot less pronounced. Um, there's a lot, uh, you know, people are quite often unretiring now. Um, so they go into retirement and then they come back out. Um, or they're they're taking uh, you know a new career, doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think now it's a lot more fluid than it used to be. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the one of the kind of questions I asked myself when I was doing the research, you know, is this all pointless? Because actually, will retirement transition even exist in the future? Yeah. Yeah, because there's so many jobs we can do. There's so much work we can do, um, uh, you know, even though we are out of the official system. I think it's interesting because when I asked myself that question, I think actually a lot of the, um, the, the emotion, I'll, I'll run through the findings at some point, but all of the those findings, I think actually will still apply. They just might be in a different timing or in a different sequence um, to what what we saw in the in the research, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I, I do think we will go through a transition, but it might be from our kind of main role to mm-hmm. perhaps more subliminal roles. Yeah, 
So we started with that. what that process kind of looks like mm. in a transition. Um, so you say change models influence and inform that and you've, you kind of went to look at uh, what's applicable and uh, where might it go beyond it. But like, could you continue uh, just laying out that process into uh, of, of transition? Yes. So in terms of what I started to see then in the research and the way I approached this is it was a, it was an interview. It was very um, fluid, very open. And it was just taught me through, you know, what happened in your, in your retirement. So taught me through the phase prior to retirement, what happened when you retired and what's happened since. And they were all sort of self-defined as retired about one year post-retirement. And, um, I wasn't looking really for a, a chronological, um, you know, a model to pop out or anything, but there really was a, a dramatic difference between pre-retirement and post-retirement in mm-hmm. terms of how they presented themselves and what their what their thinking was and what their issues were. So pre-retirement, um, this whole thing about planning retirement and the choice to um, think about retirement nobody well apart from one person one person actually chose to do that everyone else was kind of something had triggered them to think about it so their natural choice which comes back to my existential thinking is that their natural choice was to avoid thinking about this and I think there's a lot of research to back that up that um, you know I think it's something like 56% 56% of people have done no planning at all for their mm. retirement. So, you know, mm. that's, a, that's quite common um, not to think about it. So planning itself, triggering that planning is quite important for people pre-retirement. And then when they start thinking about it, it's really quite a, a shallow thinking that mm. goes on. Oh, I'm going to do more golf. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go and travel there. It's all kind of things they're going to do um, and yeah. uh, people they're going to see. So it's all quite kind of functional and yeah, yeah not you know, not much thought behind it. Yeah. It's just I want to do those things. This is a classic where the coach provides value just with some very basic curiosity. It's like, oh, how would that look like? Or, you know, who would that be? Or do you have a list? <laughs> like, yes. um, what do you mean by? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, how many people stay at that shallow level? And just being faced with like five, six questions, they're this already opening up a lot of stuff to talk about. This is it. And I think, you know, a lot of these people pre-retirement didn't get that opportunity mm-hmm. to talk to coaches. In fact, the only people pre-retirement that I spoke to um, either had like a, like a group retirement course where obviously there's not too much that's going to happen in a group environment where you're going to feel mm-hmm. comfortable to open up. So not many things. It was, again, it was quite a transactional kind of experience uh-huh. for them. But the only people that did attend coaching pre-retirement were those who had what I deemed unexpected events. So things like a bereavement, um, redundancy, or um, one person ended up going through a tribunal. And all those things had a triggering effect for them Mm -hmm. to start thinking about their future. And I think as coaches, you know, very often we don't have to even mention the word retirement. You know, we just talk about, you know, what does the plan look like for the next five years, 10 years, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. 
But it's, I, I, you know, there's a lot of research that says that even if you don't stick with the plan, just having a plan mm -hmm. can really help um, satisfaction levels post-retirement. Yeah. So, um, you know, I found, I found that really interesting that the importance of a plan was far more than I kind of felt yeah. it, it should be. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think how many people are scared to make a plan because it might not work out exactly yes. like that, but it's the same with a business plan, you know, it's, it just offers direction yeah. and making a plan that is like detailed enough to offer a purposeful uh, movement, but mm. like you're not too attached to it so that you can let it go when things change. Exactly. And And what a beautiful um, uh, opportunity. Like it's ideal for group coaching uh, settings, right? Mm. If there's not this particular event, but even if there is, you know, I, I imagined the group immediately as you were talking of people who were retirement is coming up just because of age and company policy mm. and just getting together with people who are in a similar situation and just sharing some of their hopes, dreams, you know, just uh, talking about it. I think mm. a, a partner often naturally does that. Often naturally they don't. You know, mm. I, and as a friend, I would naturally be curious. So what, what's after, you know, mm. Mm. what are you excited about? <laughs> But I think yeah. a lot of people are not in that position that they have people around them who would engage them in those conversations. And what yeah. a fantastic thing in a group. I imagine the group life to be continuing way beyond the group coaching setting just mm. because people go through a similar experience together. Yes, and and actually the 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 one the the group um, kind of retirement um, sessions that seem to have the most um, positive feedback were those where they brought in basically a mentor, someone who'd already right. been retired, to right. talk to the group, and it just gave them different perspectives on um, on retirement and that was brought things up that they hadn't really thought about right. and. I, I think when when you start thinking about retirement for the first time, it's um, yeah, it's something we you know you wouldn't have been through before. So it's always good to have different perspectives to start mm. giving you some ideas. So yeah, I think they were well received, um, but it was much more that those acted as a trigger for their own personal thinking rather mm -hmm. than them doing an awful lot of thinking in the session. Right. Okay. So do you, yeah. do you run do you run groups like that? Well, I'm looking to do that. Yeah, definitely. So um, retirement webinars is something that I'm building um, as a sort of model um, to uh -huh. do that because, you know, there are not many. Org I spoke to the big four who do run um, retirement um, sessions. But again, it's um, it's kind of like a lot of these things are. It's, it's internally created. It's not evidence based. There's no research behind it. They're not evaluated. So there's a lot more. Um, that can be done to kind of make those really robust um, and thought-provoking sessions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's definitely something I'm working on. Uh, the other thing on, on the planning, which I found really interesting, and uh, the, the approach that I took was um, I did uh, Georgie's descriptive phenomenology um, uh, in terms of my method, which forces you to um, put aside your own presumptions and assumptions and to note, and I, I diarized them as I went through. And one of my assumptions was um, the people that I was talking to, they were all executives, high flyers, um, and, you know, I uh, credited them with a lot of intelligence and a lot of forethought. And, you know, I thought these guys were going to know exactly what their financial position was mm -hmm. going to be post-retirement. And, uh, you know, I was 
astounded to learn that nobody understood their financial position. And I know wow. that there's, uh, there's, there's all this kind of, um, you know, financial advice that we're offered in terms of um, pension advice. And we know that there's a, a kind of, yeah, you know, the market could crash. And, you know, we know that there's some variability, but they really didn't understand the um, extent of that variability. And therefore, you know, could it be 20% either way? Could it be 10%? They just had no figure to hang their planning on. So this was a, a real barrier for people to do any planning post-retirement because they just had, had no sense of what their financial position would be. And this one guy was telling me about how he was literally sat on the stairs waiting for his pension check to arrive through the post to see what the amount would be and whether he could live on it. Oh, it was, wow. It, it, was, it was just what a moment. I had, yeah, I had this picture of him. Like I can remember waiting for my GCSE results in the same kind of way and that real kind of agonizing, you know, is it going to be what I need? Um, so, yeah, it, 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 I think there's a lot more that pension companies can do to really allay those fears because every single person had this fear of insufficiency and these yeah. are all you know very successful people and it was it was less about whether they some of them were worried about whether they could live on it but some were just you know what kind of lifestyle am i going to be able to live now do i need to get my one lady was saying do i need my husband and my daughter to spend less do i need to get rid of my horses you know i don't know because i just have nothing tangible to hang hang my future on but you, you uh, can't find out in the uk or is it just something they didn't so, look into No, what happens is, um, it, you know, most people will engage their financial advisors, but financial advisors do not like to say your pension will be X. And, and I think there's some laws that say that they, they can't actually commit to a number. So they, rather than saying, you know, it, the range could be, you know, 10%, it's likely to be this number, mm. but you might be 10% down, you might be 10% up. But the likelihood is going to be this. They'd, rather than saying that, they just give them very little. They're saying, mm. oh, yeah, the market's doing quite well. You might be this. Or, you know, they, they just don't give them anything tangible. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I meet with my pension advisor a lot. And um, <laughs> I'm constantly asking him questions to pinpoint things. But as one guy described it, a very slopey shoulder. They don't yeah. like to commit to a number. Right. Wow. There's another huge existential lens here uh, yes. of living with uncertainty. Yes, definitely. And I, and it's interesting how um, how that made the you know it had the impact that that had on everything else was quite um, overwhelming for them because I think that was partly the reason they didn't want to think about it because they didn't want to be in that position where it might actually be a bad news story for them. But also that thought that all that traveling that they might be hoping for wasn't actually feasible with their income. Mm. So there's this kind of, I don't really want to know <laughs> kind of feeling. Yeah. So yeah, well, that was interesting. So that was kind of the pre-retirement phase, if you like. So mm. lots of thinking, um, but not much, much more about what they were going to do rather than how they were going to be. And mm. then... Come retirement, in terms of you know Kubler Ross's grief cycle, 
and that response to um, you know having bad news. Um, there was a lot of kind of um, following off that cycle. Yeah. Could could you just uh, um, run through the stages again for people who might not oh. be familiar with this grief cycle? I need a book to do that. Hang on a moment. <laughs> I've got it here. I, I just found a wonderful meme that a friend sent me about uh, winter in Berlin and the stages of winter. Oh, that's <laughs> which a nice follow the same it. follow the same model. <laughs> okay, well maybe you should start me off then. Denial. Yes, <laughs> first of all, denial definitely. Um, and I'm trying to find it now. Where are we? Oh. It's not where I thought it was being. No, I can't find it. So, yeah, denial. Yes, here we are. So, yes, then anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then there's this phase that um, I'm looking at. Um, uh, this is uh, Jenny Rogers' interpretation of, of Kubler-Ross. There's this bargaining phase where you're mm -hmm. trying to kind of adjust your anger. And then quite often there's a low phase um, with depression. Mm -hmm. um, before you come back up to kind of accepting what's going on. Yeah. So um, now, now imagine this person who walks through the winter first in like shorts and shirt, you know, still in <laughs> denial and then yeah. getting angry and then getting depressed, uh, bargaining <laughs> with a, and then at some point uh, just accepting it and being sunk deep into the coat. <laughs> I like that. I just That's love brilliant. that. That will help me remember it in the future. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, so there was that sense um, of all those emotions at that point of retirement. So there was a lot of people that, that exhibited all of those. Mm -hmm. So how does that show up? I mean, I'm sure when people either come to coaching, I mean, when they come to coaching, I guess if you're um, like, ideally, you would get a coach as you know, that's going to come. But I reckon in in reality, probably a lot of uh, clients would come to coaching when they're in the thickness of the depression or uh, the bargaining or, you know, um, when they're when the pain started. Well, what's your yeah. what's your experience with that? So um, the, the, the people where I was able to see that happening were those that had engaged a coach pre-retirement to sort out. So they'd had these um, unexpected events. So those guys, you could see them going through that, that cycle because they were already engaged with the coach. For those that didn't have a coach, um, the only... Um, post-retirement coaches that were kind of offered by companies were outplacement coaches. And these tended to be uh, very, again, very transactional, sort of helping them with their CVs, getting back into the job market, looking at kind of NED roles and non-exec roles. So um, the it was basically down to the individuals to choose the point at which they felt they needed a coach um, because a lot of them dropped their outplacement coaches. Um, they just didn't feel they were getting enough from them, um, weren't able to support them in the, yeah. the depth of feeling that they were going through post-retirement. Um, because, you know, in my experience, um, post-retirement is when when you're really hitting those, those deeper thinkings and feelings and, um, starting to really evaluate and life appraise, um, and and you know having an outplacement coach just wasn't cutting it for for these guys. They wanted someone they could really 
you know, talk through some of these deeper issues with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so why, why, I'm just thinking, why should companies invest in retirement coaching? There's a, a million good reasons, but also, yes. uh, you know, as somebody who's sitting in HR thinking about investing in coaches, um, I could also imagine them thinking, well, they're leaving the company, so why should I invest in them? Mm. Well, interestingly, not many companies do this, but um, there are some people who use their retirees to support onboarding of um, their graduates, etc. And, um, you know, there's a huge amount of wealth for people that have been in a company for, for a long time. There's it's a lot of rich experience um, that can be um, imparted to people that are just starting um, within the company. So, com- so companies that um, invest in in their retirees can get a real benefit um, in terms of onboarding and getting people familiar with the with the company. Um, but I guess it's it's quite interesting to ask at what point does the duty of care finish for an organisation? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of people do assume you know you walk out the door, but you know that those people are going out into the world with the reputation of your company in their mm-hmm. hands mm-hmm. um so you know it is worth you um i guess offering a, a graceful exit and a um you know a, an exit where they feel really appreciated and valued i think mm-hmm. one of the things that came through was a real um distaste about how they were treated and these mm. are all people that um had been in their companies for a long long time um and had had a wonderful relationship with their HR department. Mm-hmm. But when it came to um, them leaving, it was um, felt like they were dropped quite quickly. Right. And the whole yeah. the whole process is quite, um, you know, they, they, there's not much of kind of inviting people back in to do talks. There's not that kind of kind of continued engagement in any sense in a lot yeah. of companies. Um, so there was a real anger about how some of them yeah. were treated um, so I do think HR departments can learn quite a lot um, mm. from their exit interviews. Um, and I would suggest doing exit interviews somewhere down the line as oh, well. Yeah, yeah follow um, up exit interviews. Because yeah. like, especially when we talk about this uh, through an identity lens, uh, somebody who's worked for, you know, maybe even decades at mm. a company that they're now leaving. But like, I think anything over a decade gives you a serious uh, sense of identity through mm. this company. Mm. And uh, if you're then just being dropped, that sense of identity really changes. But I mean, you can always be, for example, when I left the university, somebody once told me, you'll always be the former program leader of this uh, MSc. You know, that's that's nothing that anybody can ever take away from you. And I'm mm. like, Oh, because that sense of loss was significantly less as soon yeah. as I had understood that. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. That, that's true. That's always going to be part of my identity. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure to what extent I'm going to put that out there. Uh, but like a former professor, former politician, you know, former presidential candidate, you know, that that's all that's going to be with you. And mm. if you leave a company well and they support you as you're leaving the company, it doesn't even have to be, we're going to keep you involved with more 
more work, even though you've retired. Uh, mm. But even just like making that transition easier for you, being well taken care of, you're going to take that brand name and you're going to promote it, you know, Yeah. because you're going to tell the story. And people mm. are like, oh, how is it like to be retired? It's like, oh, I've been working with this coach and I've been building all of this and I've been, you know, I'm, I'm having meaningful things to do. And I'm, I, I was, I was asking myself some questions I hadn't really asked myself before. Uh, that's going to reflect so well on the organization, especially in the climate of the new millennials uh, looking for more meaning and yes. purpose and being taken care of. Yes, exactly. I, I think there's so much more that companies could do. And it's, it's very interesting that, um, you know, all of them felt that they, nobody did enough. Uh, and some of them were, were found other other roles within the company. Um, and, you know, the, the company felt like they were doing something for them. But interestingly, even that, that you know, the, the whole bridging techniques um, where, you know, you, you offer them another role, they felt sidelined. Mm. They felt that they weren't able to contribute to decisions like they used to be able to. So even like HR thinks they're doing a great thing by offering them another role within the company. But actually, um, you know, one guy who was a lawyer was was reporting that that really damaged him because he he felt like he was no longer valued. Nothing he said had any value anymore um, mm. because of the role that they placed him in. So, so they, they offered him a shit role, basically. They offered him a shit role which had no um, no influence and no nah. impact. Right. So um, he, you know, from being very impactful because he was one of the partners to having no impact. Right. It was, yeah, really, so really trying, good change for him. Trying to do something in potentially good faith even, you know, yes. just led to the opposite of what it was meant to do. Exactly, exactly. So what, what is enough? What, what, does it, what does it look like to do enough in the eye of the people that you've interviewed? Well, I think one of the things that um, I think the, the, the actual trigger point is really important. So actually triggering that thought, I would suggest, needs to happen a lot earlier. So potentially when people hit 50, when they may not even be thinking about um, their retirement, because um, what people were saying was that most of the retirement courses were held um, within the last six months before they were leaving. And people hadn't thought about their companies as being a vehicle to help them in their post-retirement life. So there's one lady who's telling me um, she went on to be a chair of some committees post-retirement, but she'd never chaired before. And she said, you know, if I'd have thought this through, I would have got some experience chairing meetings within my company because there were plenty of opportunities for me to do that. I just didn't even think about it. So I think triggering a lot earlier and giving people that opportunity to upskill if they want to within the company environment will be absolutely invaluable to them valuing the company for investing in them, but also to set them up so that they've got something tangible post-retirement. I think some people having that um, that role that goes pre to post, that, that bridge role is really, really um, helpful for some um, and having something that continues across so that they don't have that big change or, or in, in how they're spending the time. There's something that's continuing through for them. Mm -hmm. um, so that would help kind of bring them um, that opportunity. But I think post-retirement, I think it's about, um, you know, one guy was saying, you know, 
it's not like overnight we kind of lose all of the information that we've got. It's not like one day we wake up and we haven't got all of this experience and knowledge. It's just like, you know, what a waste they're saying. You know, I've got all of this information. What are you doing as a company to extract that out of me, to use it for better good? And, you know, some people didn't even have an ex, you know, a retirement interview. And there was one guy who said he, there was an appraisal coming up. And because he was retiring, they said, Oh, no, you don't need to do an appraisal. And he was like, What do you mean? And he demanded to do the appraisal. But there's this kind of real sense that they're just right. That's they're out of here now. We don't need mm. to think about them anymore. So really valuing what they're saying. Um, I think the other thing that organizations, do better on is the language i think um there's a real resistance about some of the ageist language um so you know using the word pensioner or you know talking about retirement even can be um seen as a you know if people aren't ready to accept that they're going into that phase they can really resist those mm. labels well that would make me old i'm not yeah. old <laughs> exactly i don't feel old <laughs> And that's what they all said. Nobody feels old. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think all as we all age externally, internally, we don't feel that same kind of aging. Mm. You know, we all we all still feel quite young in our heads. And, and it's no difference for these guys that are retiring. And um, there was there was one lady who received a letter from the company that said, Dear pensioner. And she went ballistic. She said, I know I'm taking a pension, but I'm not a pensioner. You wow, know? what she, the association. She, yeah, exactly. So, you know, using different language and and just not stereotyping that right. because you're old, you're expendable. That kind yeah. of sense was really coming through. It's going to be really interesting to see how this is going to be socially constructed going uh, constructed going forward. Because like uh, Instagram influencers in their mid twenties looking forward to retiring in ten years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, the then they're going to then they're going to yeah. be retired, but they're not going to yeah. be pensioners. Yes, exactly. And there, there are a lot of those those guys coming through now. But what's interesting now is that is that is um, in the UK they're not stipulating your retirement age anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, what what impact is that going to have? Because mm -hmm. if you naturally don't think about retirement and you haven't got a trigger, just consider it. And there's no date for you now to hold on to. Mm -hmm. Are we just going to end up with this problem? where yeah. people aren't exiting and then people can't come through into those roles because they're all full. This is so interesting because here, uh, if if the government, for example, or companies uh, tell you at what age you have to be retired, you know, mm -hmm. or a range at, by which you can be, they're offering a narrative for mm. you to define yourself at different stages in your life. Mm -hmm. And if they don't do that, existentially very interesting, we have to choose at yes. which point we adopt that label. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess that comes in into into the into your perspective on this as well, around how do we narrate our own identity. So could you tell a could you say a bit more about how this relates to a sense of self, especially the loss of it and what mm. we might be able to do as coaches to uh, to support somebody going through this? Yeah, so so one of the, the, the I guess, when you look at a lot of transitions, there is, a, is this is lost sense of identity. As you mentioned earlier, you know, um, 
losing relationships, bereavements, etc., can end up with a lost sense of identity. Um, when children leave home and the parental role is no more, that kind of thing, that, that can trigger this um, identity loss. And for all of my retirees, this featured. So there was this um, sense of loss of who they were. And the role that coaches can play here. And again, I found this really fascinating. Um, being a coach, you know, I have gone through my values a million times over the years but lots of people hadn't and so for some of them it was the first time that they were a appraising their life but b looking at their values and for some of them it was quite disturbing because they realized that the role that they'd been playing for so many years was actually complete opposite to who they were as a person mm -hmm. um, and there was one lady who said um, she'd been basically tortured from eight o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night Strong because word. She, she'd been in an open plan office environment and she was an introvert and she was she said I was um I can't remember the word she used now but basically she was on tap to anyone to come and talk to her um at any point in the day and because she was in this open office and she said it was like torture because she was an introvert and and she had this for years and years and she said the calm that she feels now she just wished she'd have been kinder to herself earlier on and mm. recognized that that wasn't the best environment for her to, to you know health wise it wasn't it wasn't a good yeah. fit for her wow so, how long some people wait to ask themselves who am yes. i how do i take what's important to me what do i believe in yes amazing it, I, i again that was one of my assumptions was that everyone would have gone through this at some point mm. by the time they've reached retirement but lots of people haven't and again mm. that's hr i believe you know have got a, a duty of care almost to have those conversations with people really early on in their careers maybe so that they've got that um sense of whether that their role fits who they mm. are um hopefully with the new generations coming through yeah. they're much going to be driving that a lot more yeah um oh, yeah this is the exciting stage i think we're in that more and more companies more and more hr departments realize that that's how they get the best out of their people because mm. i think a lot of hr departments are still very invested to fit the person into the job rather than fit the person into the job so that that's a good match Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it'd be great to see that that happen more. Definitely. Yeah. And fair play. We have so many more people to choose from now for jobs. So yes. I understand that, you know, in other times, the workforce, the number of people who could work for your company was limited. Yes. And people yeah. weren't relocating so much and people were much more static, uh, grew up in certain communities and stayed there and then applied for a job locally. And there's yes. so many with remote work, you know, the flood doors opened into really making fantastic matches with your job so that those mm -hmm. people find themselves meaningfully engaged in something that feels authentic and aligned with them values so i don't exactly. think it's just a millennial thing i think it's just uh, uh, more people to choose from better able to match jobs and people together and actually i think that's a positive that's come yes. out of um you know a lockdown you know people have had that opportunity to to think more about what they want from their their roles and they've had a taster of what it would be like to work from home mm -hmm. and quite a lot of people are choosing um choosing roles that will enable that 
Well, that's quite a transition. And you talked about the introvert. Imagine the extrovert who now yes. has to work remotely. How difficult yes. that is. Very difficult. Yes, I'm friends with quite a few extroverts and I know they feed off that energy from other mm -hmm. people and not having it is really damaged some of them. Yeah. Yeah. On a very practical level, I was curious, uh, how do you explore values with, with clients? What's your, what's some of your favorite techniques that other coaches might employ? Well, what I tend to do is I, um, well, I, I do use my existential lens at this point. So I do talk about legacy and I talk about, um, you know, if you think about your eulogy, what would people, what would you want people to say about you? And to really, mm -hmm. by focusing in on that kind of, final speech about your life, I think that can really bring out what's important to you and, and, and start focusing in on how you want to be remembered. Um, but I also used, a, a, you know, a list of values and get people to try and pull out, there are about well over 100 in there, but I get people to try and pull out their top 10 and really justify why they're in their top 10. What is it that really stands out for them? And I think It, 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 it just helps you with your direction going forwards if you've got a really clear kind of view on what's important to you. And then you can test all these new roles or whatever against that and see whether that is the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, going back to kind of the identity and what else that coaches um, can do. There are lots of different techniques in terms of um, – identity uh, ways that you can look at the self and um i i like tatiana's um, developmental coaching um book tatiana bakarova yeah her her book on developmental coaching and and um which looks focuses in on the self and looks at um different models that people might hold um, you know, uh, this kind of sense that there might just be one self within you or multiple selves within you. Mm. Or even if you've, um, you know, got to kind of, uh, flow experience and, um, you know, perhaps even a Buddhist and you've got that no self, you know, that sense of no self at all. So I think understanding coaches, if coaches can understand what self, um, mm. model, um, someone is working with mm -hmm. that can really tell you whether they're going to um, struggle more or not. So mm -hmm. someone who has multiple cells is likely to be able to um, reimagine, reshape um, their future identity mm -hmm. much more easily than someone who might think, you know, I'm a doctor and that's, that's yeah. the yeah, center yeah, yeah. of who I am and um, not having that flexibility. Um, I'd love to sketch this out a little bit more, uh, bit mm. by bit, because these are the, the three stories of self, right? That uh, Tatiana yes. talks about. And yeah. uh, recently, um, uh, the parts work, uh, internal family systems, Richard Schwartz's work, uh, is uh, talked about a lot uh, because it's really challenging this idea that there is one self because we mm. all have different parts and we all have different selves within us and they mm -hmm. can actually talk to each other. We can talk to them. So I, I think it found it, I found it really liberating in many different ways. Um, and I, I think in many ways, it's probably a, a solution to this loss of self. If we think that self, if we adopt the story of self being one thing, identity mm -hmm. being this one thing. So could you say a little bit more about what these different models entail and how they, how they might help us uh, in our coaching work? Yeah. So uh, I guess if you, if you take um, the, the, the model of one person um, and, and, 
there is only one self, then um, it, if you can imagine losing yourself, it's very catastrophic. It's mm -hmm. um, it can be really, really unsettling. So um, what um, coaches um, can help people realize is that actually multiplicity is much more um, palatable in terms of living your life that you have multiple different selves and actually if you think about all the different roles that you play in in life uh, for myself I'm a mother I'm a partner I'm a daughter I'm a you know worker I work as a magistrate you know I've got lots of different hats that I uh, that I put on and um they're, they're different personas. I, I put on a different persona when I'm at, you know, with my mm. child to when I'm in court. You know, they yeah, can't expect different. them to be the same. No. And I have different um, ways of being um, in those two different roles um, and ways of thinking. I have to think differently and talk differently. So it's, it's, um, it's really recognizing that you can, you know, as, a, as one person, you can be multiple multiple personalities in, in yeah. multiple identities. And what and pressure, what pressure to expect of ourselves to be the same set of yes. beliefs and selves in yeah. multiple different roles. Yeah, of course, I, we're going to start into conflict. Exactly. And I, and I think one of the things I've, I, I ended up actually adding a fourth um, self model to Tatiana's three, because one of my coaches, um, was very interesting because it was like a, um, a socially constructed self. So um, we talked about who who she was and, and, and there was for her no core self. And I found that really fascinating. So this is what really sparked my interest in, in the self and loss of self. She felt like there was, there was, there was no core self. And it wasn't that it was um, a different self depending on her role. It was different depending on who she was with. So there was like a socially constructed self that completely flowed depending on who she was. So there was no sense of who she uh, was as a person. So I, I added that. So it was like a, it was a chameleon kind of situation where whenever exactly. she was in a particular situation, she would just adapt to what yes. the, what she needed to be in that. Exactly. But yeah, without so a sense of connection to who she yes. felt she was. Yeah, so she couldn't articulate who she was as a person at mm. all. I found it really hard. I've had that with a client who had a long history of uh, trauma uh, with narcissistic mm -hmm. parents. And she said it's quite uh, common that if you uh, grew up with narcissistic parents, you just adapt to whatever you know you needed to be in order to survive. So it can often be a trauma response. That's very interesting because I think that would have been the case with her actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I didn't realize that. No, that adds, yeah. makes sense now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. So yeah, so those are three. And then the fourth one, which is, I guess, um, you know, perhaps on Maslow's hierarchy, it's it's the right at the top, the, the search for self-actualization and this sense that actually you leave the ego at the door and you, you know, and in Buddhism, they literally, you know, you get rid of all your possessions and you have no self. So you become one um, with Buddha. Um, so, you know, there's that, you know, and really, um, uh, I, I'm going to get his name wrong now. Check, check, uh, the flow experience. Oh, Chiksa Mihai. Thank you. May, may <laughs> rest in peace. He, he died a few weeks ago. 
Oh, did he? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I love um, his his book on um, Send Itself, but he um, writes about flow experience. Mm -hmm. And I guess the most kind of, you know, those of us who don't know Buddhists, the the kind of most um, tangible um, way that you can see this is when you watch a musician or an artist at work and you watch them kind of, I call it, go. my daughter's a musician and an artist. She goes into the zone and and you just you know you can see that there's nothing else in her world other than her work and you're absolutely absorbed and that sense of you know people who have flow experience being able to leave everything all their ego all the worldly mm -hmm. happenings at the door and just focus on what's yeah. in front of them yeah and that is such a beautiful description of how we can imagine a loss of self because i think it's difficult to hear somebody say oh no self like what what's that uh, what's that like and if we're in the zone you know if we're so absorbed by what we're doing and i think everybody in my experience almost everybody will be able to identify um an experience like that where we mm. forget to eat we forget we're hungry we notice it's gotten dark and we didn't notice it uh yeah. or like time just stopped existing um or it flowed very quickly or very slowly uh, it mm. just really gets distorted and we're coming out of these um out of these uh, experiences with a fantastic feeling Mm. And it is like that's that's having no sense of self because yes. the self didn't matter. It didn't come into this activity. We're just merged with what we're doing. Exactly. That's not that's not sustainable, though, is it? As a as a model of self, or how can I imagine that on a prolonged scale? Because couple of couple of minutes, yes, absolutely. Couple of hours, yes, I've experienced that perhaps with like maybe coming in and out, but mm -hmm. like I couldn't imagine that on a on a on a permanent level. I think there are some people, but I reckon it is very very few that achieve that. And I think these are people that meditate a lot. Um, That's the enlightened person on the mountaintop kind exactly, of uh, stereotype. Exactly. I I think we're talking, um, you know probably less than a hundred people in the world, you know, a very small number. Just permanently But, at one with the universe and everything that's happening around them with, yes. you know, their, their ego just kind of stepped back and disappeared. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's possible, but it's, it's very hard to do. Mm. And, and like you say, it's more, much more likely and much more tangible that most people are going to experience it for moments or hours mm. at most. Yeah. And and just kind of to take two steps back, um, mm. a uni uni mind sense of self, like where there's one sense of self. Um, yeah. Does it have? Because we were talking about it. I think we're both fans of acknowledging that there's different selves. But mm -hmm. what's why is that model still? Why does it still exist? What what is the what's the benefit of that? You know, what, what's what's good about having just one sense of self? I think if anything. Well, the, yeah, I think. The reason it still exists, I think there's quite a lot of um, uh, science that might have supported that originally, that, you know, that, that there's one brain and, you know, that some of the scientific experiments suggested that, you know, your brain does the thinking and your, your body does the acting. So that kind of connection between the two. But actually, the reason that, that it still exists is because that's how most of us feel we feel like we have one authentic self um and you know the conversations that we have in our in our head is is you know are talking to ourselves you know it feels like there's only one of us mm -hmm. so i think that's why it's kind of um sustained as a you know as a as a model yeah. really 
Yeah, also it's it's simple, and I think there's comfort in its simplicity that there mm. is this one thing that I am. You know, that I have found the thing. You know, yes. I have found myself. Yeah. Nobody says, "Oh, I found my, I, I found some of myself, <laughs> and they're very dear to me." So I think people resonate with the idea of I can find it because it's one thing, and mm. then I have this construct around it, and that's me, and I can point to it and I describe it. You know, it mm-hmm. makes things much more complex when we acknowledge that there's multiple selves, and I think that's what people gravitate to who hold on to that model. Yes, and I think also actually there um, there was some confusion between having multiple selves and multiple personalities. Mm-hmm. And oh, that I means think, you're crazy. You need to go see yes, a drink, take some exactly. medication. <laughs> so, you know, some of those you know stories about multiple personalities, people kind of therefore didn't want to feel like mm-hmm. they have multiple selves. So, yeah. yeah it I is think, a bit scary. It, it yeah. takes, I think it takes courage to acknowledge that, you know, I'm a different person when I'm with those people. And yeah. what does that make me? You know, does that, does it make me inauthentic? We always talk about mm-hmm. authenticity as this holy grail of, uh, you know, aligning everything in one concept. And I, 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 it's difficult to hold for many people. It was difficult for me to hold for a long mm-hmm. time. How can I be authentic when I'm somebody else in a different situation? Um, I talked with an actor about this, which was fantastic. Combina- uh, like I want to have her on the, on the podcast soon. Um, mm. We talked about how you can be authentic when you're playing a role. You know, mm-hmm. in, initially we talked about acting. How can you authentically be somebody else that you're clearly not, you know, in a movie or in a play? Same thing as how can I be authentic in my job? When my job is not fully aligned with my values, I can still be show up authentically. How can I show up authentically as a parent holding authority when actually I'm quite against authority, but I know I need to hold good boundaries for the benefit of my child. How can I be authentic in that? Super interesting uh, conversation. Yeah, no, that's interesting to think about the acting side of it. Yes. Hard. Yes. Yes. So you said there were some, um, you said there were, uh, are you finished with the mind, by the way, with a different identity? Uh, the, uh, yes, construct? sorry. Yes, I am. I think so. Yes. Yeah? You said there were some uh, exercises. Uh, you wrote about that in your article that uh, there was some identity finding or identity exploring exercises. Could you tell us about that and how coaches could use it? Yeah. So I think it is, it is about um, working with them to understand how um, how they see themselves and then if they have just one self-construct exploring with them all the different roles they hold and whether potentially there might be some multiplicity going on and whether that's acceptable to them or not and just exploring that with them and letting them understand that there are other concepts of the self because Mm. uh, you know like we just said you know it's it's talked about that there is oneself more than any other of the concepts so just allowing them to understand and explore that there might be other other ways of being um uh, sorry to interrupt but how can i imagine that in the coaching process would you would there be an element of psychoeducation or would you uh, contract that you this is my process and that part of this we're going to talk about identity or is it just coming up in conversation how do you how do you introduce that well um if somebody is talking about, uh, you know, authenticity, etc., you know, I, I I will ask the question, you know, are 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 you, uh, you know, aware of any other concepts of self? And then if they if they're saying, well, no, then I will contract to say, you know, 
shall we talk about other concepts? And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's when I kind of say, you know, according to whoever and talk, talk through the concepts for them, mm-hmm. just for them to kind of see other perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that because I think so many coaches, they, they have been taught not to teach, you know, or not to bring in their own perspective and to really help the client find their own answers. Mm. But there's also plenty of coaches out there who, who say like, here's, here's a piece of uh, theory, you know, um, and that often sparks a lot of thoughts. Mm. And uh, I, I see that, especially in positive psychology coaching, that positive psychology coaches are like one of the dominant defining factors of that approach is it's informed by evidence-based science. It's Uh informed by empirical data. And um, uh, my colleague Susie Green, for example, said it's, we always have an obligation to bring in the science and let our clients think about that. Mm. And it sounds that that's a similar approach that you're taking. It's like, it's actually really informative to put this on the table for my clients to consider. Yeah, I mean, I think one of our most important roles as a coach is to offer different perspectives. And you know, if they are in a position where they haven't got that information at hand, then all I feel like I'm doing is is opening their eyes mm-hmm. to other other ways of thinking. Yeah, and one of Heron's uh, facilitation styles have been around since the 70s that's often adopted in coaching as well is sharing information. It's part of mm-hmm. our playing field. It yeah. doesn't mean that I'm directive. It doesn't mean that no. I say you have to believe in the multi-mind because that's going to be the best thing for you, even though I might believe it. You know, but putting some information on the table and letting our clients uh, have a conversation about that with us, think about it in the space that we're holding, I mm. think it's super valid and actually super helpful for, for many clients when mm. the context feels right for it. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so, so what, what else other than perhaps sharing some of this, is there any, are there any specific, um, models or processes or techniques that we can use to help somebody explore their identity? Um, in terms of identity, um, I guess, um, sometimes it can help to, um, you know, use the chair technique, um, and to explore, um, especially when you've got a lost um, identity from from work, you can explore having a conversation with the work identity um, and perhaps the retirement identity. Um, so explore um, conversations between your multiple identities. I think that can be quite helpful because ultimately what you might be looking to do depending on on where you start up is to have a completely new identity post-retirement it could be an old identity that's from your i don't know childhood that is coming out of the into the fore or it could be um a kind of merging of some of the identities that you mm-hmm. you already have it could be a completely recrafting reshaping of your your set of multiple identities and i think it's very much an exploration phase, um, the, the identity bit for me. And it, it, there is no one model mm-hmm. that is applicable, really. And, you know, I, I have seen people in all those different kind of coming with all those different self models. And there's not one technique that works better for others. Right. It's just talking through all the options and yeah it's okay to be changing your identity. It's okay to be developing a new one and it's okay to kind of feel a loss of one, you know, and it's just talking through 
really, I guess, whether where there is that sense of loss, it's it's talking to that identity that was celebrating what they've they've done and what they've achieved and and how they've integrated. Like you were saying earlier, you know, they are they are still part of you. They will always be part of you. They are still there. Um, And just that acceptance that it's made you who you are today. But, you know, now we're Mm -hmm. on to a new chapter. Yeah, I I always um, there's so many coaches who want to know specific tools and what are the questions that I need to ask. And for me, it's the same thing. Like we're having a conversation here, right? Mm -hmm. And in that within that conversation, um, you will you will have the opportunity to explore different perspectives or different ways of of doing this. Uh, You mentioned chair exercises, the empty chair gestalt. If people want to Google that, there's lots out there where you invite your client to sit uh, in an empty chair, bring in an empty chair and invite them to sit on it, embodying this other part of their identity. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done it quite a few times. Uh, Usually I I just talk to that identity, you know, for example, I might say something like, oh, can can I talk to the Tessa that's really excited about this next stage for a moment? Mm -hmm. You know? And if that's difficult, it can really help to do an empty chair exercise because it literally embodies that. Yes. And uh, Richard Schwartz, uh, I was listening to Greater Than the Sum of Its Parts, which is excellent. It's just a seminar where he talks through and guides you through some of these meditations almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's lots of things out there for the uh, tool-hungry or process-hungry <laughs> coach out there uh, yeah. to look up. And this is quite amazing. And it, it doesn't have to get all therapeutic and really uh, um, separating into split personalities. And, you know, it can feel quite therapeutic and it can feel quite out there. But mm-hmm. just like I had a client, for example, for for years, um, we've been um, working together and um, we still talk about, let's call him John, John 1 and John 2, mm-hmm. you know, and John 1 was very type A personality, very much uh, goal getter, very, uh, very amazingly successful and driven mm-hmm. and hungry. And uh, John 2 just wanted to be more in the present, more in the moment, be more mm-hmm. mindful, you know, chill. Uh, smoke a spliff and go to a, <laughs> go to a concert, you know. And they two mm-hmm. were often fighting, you know. Yeah, they also yeah. really had a lot to offer to each other. But like, it doesn't have to be super complex and breaking it up into certain uh, sets of personality. But it's just mm-hmm. acknowledging that one part of me wants this and the other part of me wants that, and sometimes they're fighting for obvious reasons. Mm. And, and maybe just accepting that. There, there are those two personal you know, parts yeah. to your um, identity and not kind of fighting it yourself, you know, not, yeah. not trying to integrate them. Yeah. So, I'd love to yeah. hear more from the part of you that is really grieving about yeah. the loss or the, the ending of uh, your job. You know, um, things like that can help us to just kind of break it up. But also, I think sometimes we need to be a bit careful that we're not uh, breaking it up too much, because I think it can be a difficult experience also for somebody to be if they had a very uni sense of self to then, you know, feel like, oh, I'm this. How do I bring them together? Yes. Did you have that in your work that uh, maybe a client were drifting too far apart with different parts of their identity and struggling to uh, build a coherent framework of who they are? So I think coherence is what, you know, people who have that one sense of self, that's what they're seeking is a coherence. Mm -hmm. And there is, there is a way of 
looking at the commonalities to make them feel um, more comfortable that there's uh, there's coherence. So looking more at the similarities rather than the differences um, can be helpful when you've got that that type of um, client. So, you know, talk through, you know, talk, tell me what your similarities are. And that starts to help them feel, I guess, less anxious. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Richard Schwartz talks about the the self with a capital S, you know, the one that actually makes the decisions. Yes. I've yeah. I've heard another fantastic model, uh, I forgot who was by a client mentioned it, which is the inner team. You know, people who have spent a lot of time in organizations, they understand yes. that there can be a boardroom. You know, yes. and there's like maybe nobody likes Karen or James from HR, but they actually have an important function, you yeah. know, in the team. And yeah. maybe this person is too far out there, but you have your boardroom, but there's still somebody who makes the decisions in the end. And that's, that's, that's you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, that um, is a useful analogy, actually, sometimes to think about your um, multiple identities as a team. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that someone can, might be taking the lead one week and someone yeah. else the next. Yeah, that's who's quite the, useful. Who's the, who's the health and safety inspector that, you know, <laughs> nobody likes, but it yeah. fulfills a very important function very important. within the team. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, excellent. I like that. <laughs> um, I'm conscious there's one more bit that came out in my research that I found really, um, really interesting um, post-retirement. So I think... Just to sort of summarize the pre-retirement, post-retirement differences, I think pre-retirement was very practical, functional, quite surface, superficial. Post-retirement, the kind of topics that people were looking at were life appraisals. They were looking at rebalancing um, their time, their freedom. So really thinking deeply about how they were going to spend their time, not just I'm going to go and say so-and-so because I haven't for a long time, but I'm going to go and spend some quality time with this person because we've both got a love of X. You know, so really thinking about why they're choosing to do what they were going to do. Um, the identity piece, of course, that it always has lots of deep conversations. And, you know, there was this sense that they needed someone in a one-to-one -one, um, coach capacity to really explore their new identity, their old identity, whatever. Um, and then the, the third bit um, that kind of came out post-retirement was this um, real um, challenge where they um, – linked retirement with aging and they just couldn't break the two apart. So lots of their language was about getting old rather than retiring. And there was this complete um, entanglement between the concepts and how they talked about it. And there was this um, sense that they were losing vitality. Um, they, they feared death. So there was lots of kind of existential conversations that happened um, in their coaching environment, um, prompted by retirement. And there was one guy that said, um, all my life, um, or, you know, my uh, goal was retirement. Now my goal is death. You know, just that sense that. Yeah. There's a, you know, this, I'm on my last chapter and it really kind of, um, all the thoughts that that brings, um, to someone when they're starting to think about, um, ending their days and 
for some that was really overwhelming and for others it was really energizing and you know they're like I might not have long left I need to get on and do things that kind of um mentality but others um found it very um destructive for them um and you know destabilize them um in terms of being able to move forward Mm. so i imagine this is your your area (laughs) of expertise (laughs) so i'm interested in in whether you've come across um this kind of conversation where we're linked with retirement yeah well existentialists love uh, talking about death stereotypically (laughs) right (laughs) and What we actually appreciate is that endings and temporality are a huge uh, aspect in what people care about and what, what people don't really, what people want to avoid. So care about in it's, it's important to us. So important that we might deny it and would not want to talk about it. So I think this is part of the reason and probably a big part of the reason that people don't seek the conversation about their retirement. Um, that people don't seek because that means that means what's next and as mm. that that uh, participant of yours said uh, very beautifully you know, now now what's the what's the next thing it might mm. not be traveling and finally relaxing for them it might be oh now it's the closest period of death this is the last part of my life mm-hmm. um, I think this is part of why the death of a parent struck us so hard even even those people who might not have a relationship with their parents even Mm. Um, it's because now, now I'm next, you know, I'm the next in line. Um, Mm -hmm. and that can be very scary, Mm. uh, exploring a client's relationship with endings in general, I think will help them throughout a lot of things, but uh, I think engaging them in a conversation about legacy or endings, what does it mean to die? Well, what do I still want to do? How much time do I think I have left? Mm. Because like many people live another 20, 30 years after retirement. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's huge. I mean, 20, 30 years in the beginning of your life is like, it feels like your whole life. Yeah, exactly. But we have the same time span with all the knowledge that we've already gathered. And yes, uh, admittedly, uh, some health issues and, you know, um, the body starts decaying. Um, well, not decaying is maybe a strong word, but like we develop certain ails and uh, we're not young anymore. Mm. But still, there's potentially so much time left and we have so much to give. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we also live in a society, at least in the UK here, where I feel like people who have retired or people who are in their later stages of life, they often get abandoned. You know, they often they don't feel like a valuable part of society anymore. And my wife is Mexican. So there's, you know, old people in Mexico are treated very, very differently. They're still very much involved and they're very much respected and valued. Mm for what they have experienced and the advice that they can give for, you know, the attitudes that they hold. Yeah. Well, there was, I'm glad you raised this because this was another massive finding and one, again, something that I wasn't expecting. So one of the things I did alongside the interviews was prior to the interview, I gave them, you know, the barefoot coaching cards. And I said, pick some of these out um, just to kind of prompt their thinking um, and quite a few of them chose this picture of an elderly black woman. And she was in a setting that people perceived was a tribal setting. And there was so much warmth towards her. And they were talking about how wise she looked. She looked like she had lots of experience and how she was respected. And there's this lovely, positive um, association with age by looking at this picture. 
And this, these conversations really like flipped from this complete warmth towards this anti kind of ageist attitude within the West and how they felt exactly as you said, that we are not valuing our elderly people in any way like they do in other cultures. And as you say, Mexico's, you know, they value their, their elders and they have a big part to play in the family for a long time and, you know, other cultures similarly. In fact, I think there's a law in China where kids have to look after their parents. Yeah. yeah? And in, in, in the UK, they, 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 you know, they talked about this sense of abandonment and that they are put into retirement communities. They are kind of um, boxed away from mm-hmm. society and not integrated into family life in the same way as other cultures. So there was this real... Um, angle that came out and anyone who's doing research into um anything the power of using these um photographs i honestly don't think that cultural thought would have come up without um those photographs Mm. so it was really interesting to see the strength of the reaction towards that photograph and and how it opened this real anger yeah. Um, about Western um, cultural aspects and yeah. how we treat the elves. Yeah. Have you have you come across other research in different cultural contexts? Given that you know cultural um, cu- culture seems to be so important, culture not just in terms of a culture in another country, but also culture in another family. You know, a culture in another workplace. Have you come across culturally significant research? Um, in regarding um, retirement, no, I've, I've come across articles, but nothing really, uh, not substantial um, mm. research. Have you? No, no, I haven't. No, so maybe there's a research opportunity there. Well, yeah. this is this is where the research process uh, kicks in, right? Uh, mm. It's it's one study, and then somebody can try to replicate that study in a in a different cultural environment and see mm. what are how are people in other um, cultural settings, in other organizations, or in other geographical cultures, religious mm. cultures, perhaps um, yeah. uh, relate to the to uh, transitioning into mm. retirement. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's definitely. Um, room for us to learn from other cultures um certainly uh, you know i i don't know why we are the way that we are and i i, and I don't understand it and i don't think we've always been this way mm-hmm. so i don't I, I don't really understand why it's become this way mm-hmm. um and i don't know whether it needs to stay this way but um there's some research actually there's a um a, a an organization called the Center for Aging Better in the UK, mm-hmm. and they do quite a lot of research. And they've done some research to um, uncover that these cultural attitudes really do um, impact the, um, the health and well-being of um, people that are retiring. So because there's this sort of sense of abandonment within our culture. Therefore, you've not just got the kind of mortality and vitality issues um, with getting old, but you've also got this abandonment issue. So there's so many things now linked to retirement that are negative for these people. Mm -hmm. Um, There's there's a a sense that it's actually impacting their psychological well-being. Um, So that's what the research is showing at the moment. So I think we've all got... um, a responsibility to um, respect um, our, our elders and and understand the value that they bring. 
Yeah. Oh, it's amazing mm-hmm. how like a systemic approach comes in, a developmental approach comes in here, a positive psychology approach comes in here. Narrative keeps popping up for me. Yeah. Um, feeling like a narrative approach to coaching could really help somebody craft their story so related to yes. identity. Um, yeah. Have you come across that? Yes. No, um, I have. And in fact, that's one of the one of the things that I do sort of um, put in my recommendations that certainly with regards to identity, the narrative approach would be a great way of recrafting who you are and who you want to present yourself as um, mm-hmm. in your new future um, retiring identity. Mm-hmm. Um, because for some people, you know, it is a completely different person. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you um, have an opportunity to create that person, which I find really exciting. exciting. Yeah, who do you, who do you want to be? I know. <laughs> it's great. It's great. And I think that's, that's what's missing at the moment is um, there doesn't seem to be much excitement about mm. retiring. And I don't know why it has to be this kind of doom and gloom. It really doesn't. I think it's it's an exciting stage, you know, Mm. Uh, you know, you, you actually are dropping some of the shackles, you know, like somebody said, um, one of my participants said, you know, I'm dropping the requirement to earn, you know, that, that kind of, you get this sense of freedom because you're no longer having to do that kind of nine to five every day, you know, you, you, you you can, you've got a great opportunity. So yeah, um, yeah, I'd like to inject more enthusiasm into (laughs) retirement. (laughs) Isn't that weird that we look forward to retirement as soon as we start working and then the longer we work, we seem to look forward to it less and less because we've become so entangled our self-assense with our work. Yes. No, it is interesting. And and I, I wonder whether, you know, somebody who hasn't got that same association with their work, whether actually when they retire, um, you know, it's it's easier for them. I guess it is, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I've had another question on here, uh, which mm. is, you said it's very important that the coach has a look at their sense of self. And yeah. um, I think there's some obvious reasons there, but I don't want to assume that they're obvious. So maybe you could just talk about why it's important for a coach to have a, uh, to, to explore their sense of self. Well, um, I guess this stems from when I first got interested in a sense of self, because I, at the point that I was doing that, had, in my eyes, a unitary sense of self. So I felt, you know, there was one authentic self. And this is when I met my coachee who had this self that changed whenever she was in a different social situation. And I found that really kind of surprising. And that prompted me to investigate um, self models, etc. But it, it's um, the questioning that I had for her was from a place of having a unitary and authentic sense of self. So I was, you know, all the questions I was asking made that assumption. So mm. um, I guess it's it's being aware that there are other, you know, and, and not changing your language to make assumptions from your own sense of self. So even a multiplicity, you know, even have, if you have a multiplicity, then, you know, not assuming that um, in the other person but just being open to explore everything. Yeah. What a different question to ask somebody. If you say, tell me about yourself or like, tell me about some of the different parts of yourself. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I know. I know. And, and you'll get completely different answers, won't you? Yeah. 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 Imagine like, who are you at work? And then you ask, Mm. who are you at home? Mm. And then you ask, who are you with your friends? 
Mm-hmm. You know, what a like you're asking the questions based or informed by your perspective on self. And exactly. I, I think we it's very important to for coaches to understand not just uh, in terms of self and identity what our questions are informed by, but being quite aware in general what our questions are informed by. You know. Yes. Uh, I mentioned positive psychology coaching earlier. We don't need to follow a certain 10-step process or guide somebody through uh, positive psychology interventions in order to be a positive psychology coach. Mm -hmm. Our questions can be informed by, well, what kind of happy do you mean when you say happy? Yeah. You know, tell me more about how you understand happiness. Informed by happiness isn't one thing. It isn't just feeling good. There's all of these different pillars and foundations that uh-huh. contribute uh-huh. to happiness, which I know from science. And I'm curious about how you relate to that. Uh-huh. But I'm not mentioning the theory. I'm not mentioning the science. I'm just, you know, asking the question informed by what I know. Exactly. No, I totally agree. Yeah. Cool. And then, well, you talk about, uh, 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 you you have two interesting phrases um, that you mentioned in your research, hunt it down mm-hmm. or let it be. So can you tell us a bit more about what they mean and how, how that can help us coach people better? Well, um, I guess it was this, um, with a, with a lost sense of self, it was, um, this sense that, you know, if you have a unitary sense of self that, you know, this, this, utter kind of helplessness when you when you lose it and this sense that you kind of need to find it again you know where is it gone I need to hunt it down I need to find out who I am um so there was it was really kind of playing with the different models of the self so you know hunting it down was about you know if I have one self then have I got to look for it to find it or do you just kind of accept that I've that self has, has gone, that work self and that work identity is no more. Um, and, you know, just accept that that's, you know, just let it be, just accept that that has, time has passed and now you're a different identity. Or it could also be in the, uh, the let it be could be, you know, that you have no self. So it was playing with the kind of um, the sense of there being lots of models of the self and how, um, you know, you might feel that urge to hunt a self down or you might not. And that is going to be informed by your own self model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, okay. Before we move into some quick fire questions or maybe not so quick fire questions, we'll see. <laughs> is, there, is there anything that you wanted to say about this topic that maybe I forgot to ask about or it hasn't really flowed into that direction? Um, I don't think so. I think, you know, I think we've covered most things. I think the main, yeah, the the only other point that I would, would make actually from a coaching perspective is that because of these different skills that were needed pre-retirement and post-retirement, what I found in, in my research was that actually all of the retirees engaged multiple coaches. So from two to five, so that five is the maximum. And I thought it was quite interesting because um, talking to them about it, there were there were practical reasons why that was the case. So for some, it was that they didn't want that link with work anymore. So if they the work had engaged um, an outplacement coach or um, you know that they'd been on a retirement course and it was no more. So some of it was very practical as to reason why they chose another coach. But others were seeking um, a skill set 
that they didn't feel the kind of more practical coaches could provide. So it's really a note for us as coaches that if we are working with retirees, that there may be a very different need pre-retirement to what they need post-retirement and asking ourselves, you know, are we best placed to flex um, between the, those needs or do we need to accept that actually you're best placed in a pre-retirement role or a post-retirement role and being honest with our coaches if if that's the case um, or being prepared to flex and, and adapt, um, which is my personal preference, which is why I love transitions because I like to do that whole breadth um, mm. of activities. I don't know. How are you? Do you like to do that too? I, I love transitions because uh, they they pr um, present such an opportunity to do something different. But at the same time, they're also really scary. And I really acknowledge how much courage it takes to change transitions. Mm. So uh, talking about uh, often the opportunity is not really focused on. Often it can be forgotten because of the anxiety that pops up, of the not knowing, of the different stage. You know, even if it's not the last stage of your life it's like it's the next stage of your life and you're mm -hmm. leaving behind what you know well yeah so there is a reinvention and many people i think see that as oh i'm gonna have to reinvent myself or like i have to uh, you know let all of these things go mm. and i think often there's an underappreciation of i get to let these things go and i get to be somebody else and i get to do things differently every ending is an is also an opportunity is also a new beginning yeah so how do we relate to that i think is a fascinating conversation because mm. if we do that well and they understand Understand their own relationship with endings and transitions and new phases, then the next significant transition will be much much easier. Yes, you know yeah. it's not it's not necessarily it's not going to be easy necessarily, but it's going to be much easier. Imagine we do mm -hmm. that early with the transition into I don't know uh, from being twenty to being thirty, or mm -hmm. into having kids, or into uh, like the end of a relationship, being single now, mm -hmm. you know. And if we if we work well with a client through transitions, then I think the the transition into retirement, of course they're going to get a coach. Of course they're going to ask themselves those questions. Of course they're going to seek the conversations or maybe seek the support of a group if mm. they have positive uh, experiences with that earlier transitions. Mm. And yeah. so existential. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Oh, there was one question I still wanted to ask, which was about <laughs> uh, rituals. I have a, a supervisee who works with rituals. He, he did a lot of research into um, indigenous tribes and like lots of kind of rites of passage and these mm -hmm. kind of things. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if you've come across this or even use some of that in your coaching work to kind of mark the ending. If the company doesn't do it for you or with you, You know, if there isn't that conversation, uh, is it important or, you know, to mark this with some sort of ritual? If the, the company doesn't allow or doesn't um, uh, invite you to have some sort of leaving shindig, you know, yeah. I, I had to organize it myself when I left the university and like some people mm -hmm. do it, some people don't do it, some people hate doing it because that makes it official, but mm -hmm. like... Others do very private kind of rituals and mark it in their own way in, you know, maybe they climb a mountain or whatever it is. Do you think that's important or do you I work do. creating I, that? Yeah, I, I think it's vitally important. And, I, you know, I always think 
ending anything. Um, you know, it's a moment of reflection for some, um, a moment of celebration for others, you know, and I, I think it, it depends on that experience for that individual um, and their comfort zone in terms of whether they want to be in a massive social shindig or not. But, you know, I think actually recognising that end of a chapter is really important and can really help with going on to the next phase because once you've kind of put that to bed, you feel much more ready to look forward. And I think um, if you don't do that, then it's got a potential of kind of creeping in and influencing what you do going forward rather than kind of, you know, if you've got regrets or, um, you know, any negative feelings, they can kind of keep going um, into the future. Whereas really what you want to do is kind of go through that reflection process of, thinking through all of those things and then recognizing them, accepting them, and then being mm-hmm. prepared to, to, to move forward. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I absolutely think endings are really important. How about you? Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Um, and I, I actually quite enjoy, um, uh, creating these, um, you know, the, I usually sit back, but I often offer, uh, the thought, you know, mm. have you thought about marking this in some way? Yeah. And I'm not shy to kind of say, well, it, it can really help. Uh, it helped a lot of people that I know to just mark the occasion. And if you're mm-hmm. not being supported to do that, have you thought about doing it yourself? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people haven't really considered that. Um, and then once they do consider it, they actually get quite excited about creating something. And I, I love the yeah. creativity that goes in them because it usually goes away from, oh, I'm going to do like an office leaving party. Uh, to like things that I would have never imagined, um, you know, like spending some time in nature and like somebody wanted to go fishing, you know, because that fishing trip just often marked the end of an era for, for this, for this oh, guy. Wonderful. So yeah. that was very cool. And like, I couldn't have picked that out of a hat. <laughs> this is it. And I think what I mean is very personal to that person, isn't it? Yes. What's significant to them. And, you know, like you say, I wouldn't have come up with fishing either. <laughs> Yeah. So, exactly. Yeah, I thought that person was going to have a party. <laughs> and yeah. then they said, I'm going to go fishing on my own. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Cool. So uh, a couple of questions. Feel free yeah. to uh, take as much or as little time uh, for them. Um, what are some of the books or people uh, that had a significant impact on, on that work that you're doing? So one of my favourite books um, is Viktor Frankl's um, Sense of Meaning. So, uh, you know, Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning, yeah. Yeah, Man's Search for Meaning. And um, I I read that way back when. My first degree is in psychology, and so I've always been fascinated with that. But his um, sense of positivity, given the conditions that he was in at the time, because he was um, in a concentration camp, the time yeah and And some of the worst ones in nazi germany indeed and he was able to think positively um and helped other people to think positively and i guess um you a lot of that was was about the search for meaning and what you know when when you're in such a, a tragic situation how you can still um kind of um think positively um, about um, meaning and and life and, and looking forward. So I found that a really powerful book. Um, yeah. And also I think... Oh, hold on, I just wanted yeah. to, to throw in um, that question of what does life still expect from you 
was such a powerful question within his philosophy. Yes. It's like, not yeah. what can I still expect from life? Because I think when people are going into retirement, they, they often ask themselves that question. Yes. What, what can I still get out of life? And yeah. the, flipping the question of what does life still expect from you? Yeah. I think it's such a powerful one to explore because it is. Who, who are the people that might still really either depend on you or could really benefit from you or could, yeah. where, where could you really add value, you know? And is that something you even care about? Because I think a lot of, a lot of life ends early because uh, people forget what they can contribute and yes. they feel, oh, there's nothing more to get from life when actually there's a lot that they could still contribute. And that feeling of contribution leads people to hold on to life a lot longer and be healthier and live longer yeah yeah no exactly and, and that's obviously what what he went on to do wasn't it to mm. to contribute all his learnings and I, I you know i i i agree that um sometimes we're we're a bit selfish in a way in terms of expecting too much but like you say it's it's a two-way traffic you know and we mm -hmm. we need to give to get sometimes yeah and how great um, does it feel to give Oh, lovely. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that, that has been a, you know, essential um, book for me. And again, you see, you can see the existential side of that um, uh, resonated with me. I think there was another book and I can't remember which one of the hostages wrote it. Um, I don't know if it was Terry Wake, but it was a, a, one of those, um, which was their, their personal biography. Um, but Wait, what hostages? Um, these were hostages. Now they, they were, um, so one of the guys was a, um, a priest and the other one was a journalist. And, um, I can't even remember the country. I think it might have been Iraq, but it was somewhere in, uh, in the Middle East and they were held hostages and it became a big thing in the news. This was quite a while back, probably 20 years ago. Um, and, um, basically the, the guy, you know, they were, um, had uh, um, their heads covered with um, Hessian sacks so they couldn't see anything um, and they were kept in you know tied up in in a dark cell and one of these guys was reporting how when he was in those moments he you know in he'd been beaten and, and tortured etc that he knew that that the one thing that they couldn't take away was his thoughts um, so it was that ability to, he used to go on walks in his head around his old um, village with his dog. And he used to use the power of the mind to have positive experiences whilst he was in this really devastating situation. Mm -hmm. So there's something that I really like about that, um, being positive no matter yeah. what. Oh, basically. wow. And <laughs> I think the the sheer wonders that the mind can offer you is like what an incredible space to explore, you know. Exactly. I mean, I don't think anybody will have explored their mind nearly as much as possible. And no. once you're going into retirement, I mean, just um, I had a moment in in Mexico when I first visited Mexico, and uh, things just move a little slower there. <laughs> you know, there were just these uh, I don't know these uh, patches of like ten twenty minutes that occurred very frequently, where there was just nothing going on. We we're just kind of waiting for somebody. Yeah. Um, and uh, if somebody tells me we're going to leave in five minutes, then three hundred seconds later I'll be there <laughs> <laughs> with my shoes on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then I was just like sitting on the sofa somewhere for like ten twenty minutes until everybody else was ready uh, mm -hmm. and just kind of start that uh, was a huge step in my meditation practice um, because just spending time with my own mind 
And yes. I think when people move into retirement where a lot of people will have less contact with other people or perhaps less things to do, not necessarily, absolutely. Um, but like I, I would part like maybe it's the introvert me, but I think I would be quite excited to get in some really interesting explorative practices and mm. see what happens when I meditate, you know, for yeah. like way longer than I currently have time for because there's, you know, a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. And I, I think it's that is that it's the power of the mind, isn't it? And the the power that um, it's interesting as well. The other thing that um, has really influenced me is my dad has severe dementia, mm. um, and he's had it for like eight years. So over the last eight mm. years, he was a, a doctor, a specialist, and he is now. You know, he doesn't know who he is, what he is. Ooh, speaking you know, of can't. lost sense of identity. Yeah, exactly. So he, it's been. Yeah, exactly. And I've watched his identity disappear. And oh, that's been really tough. fascinating, but disturbing as well. Yeah. And also his sense of home. So, um, you know, even when he was at home, he said, I want to go home. And it's, mm -hmm. it's that sense of wanting to go back to where you feel comfortable and, and back to your identity where you, you know, you know who you are. And I, I do feel like when he's saying those words, it's like, I want to feel comfortable in myself. Mm. Um, so it's very interesting. I, I've, you know, changed my concept of what home is now through my dad's kind of exploration and, and, and just that understanding of, you know, whilst you've got your mind, explore it and love it mm -hmm. and you know treat it with it because you know uh, in eight years my dad's has disappeared mm -hmm. and it's you know that the thought that you know we could lose this amazing you know organ that we've got and so mm -hmm. use it whilst you can basically so oh. yeah wow yeah. thank you for sharing that with us yeah no problem <laughs> wow yeah makes you reflect um on what you know that the mind it can disappear you know you can still exist exactly. but but lose your sense of identity what do you want to do before speaking of legacy speaking of yeah. how much time we have you know not yeah. just to live but also with our sense of self exactly exactly yeah and and you know you never expect to lose your identity in the same way that you yeah. know my dad has in you know he never anticipated that but you know, there's so many incidents of dementia nowadays. It's it's mm -hmm. probably more likely than it's not. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Let's get this over with. I got the work to do. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, do you think the coaching profession should be regulated, or what do you think about regulation in the coaching space? Given the, especially that you know, coaches who work with people who are transitioning into retirement. They can be very vulnerable people. Yeah. Um, I, I have quite strong views on this, actually. Um, interestingly, I'm not attached to anyone currently in terms of a professional body. But mm. when I entered into the coaching profession, I was obviously aware that there were quite a lot of people out there um, and that, you know, you can do a one-day course or, or more. So I deliberately went to do my master's for two years at Brooks to ensure that I felt comfortable that I was a credible coach before I went out into practice. So I've done that um, to kind of uh, mark that kind of a sense of accreditation. But I do 
what I struggle with in, in, in the coaching profession as a totality is the number of professional bodies and the fact that they're um, almost obsessed with coaches and they're forgetting about the clients. And I, um, I struggle with this kind of um, almost infighting between the professional bodies to try and kind of attract you to them and, and I just feel like the client voices got lost in that competition. Um, so at the moment, I'm fearful of being attached to one body um, because I don't feel alliance with any one particular body. I'd rather be, I'd rather there was just one. Um, like mm. the, the British psychologists, I, I mean, as I say, my, my first degree was psychology. So I'm really excited that they've got the new coaching psychologist kind of, and I'm definitely going to go for that because mm. that is central to who I am, definitely, mm -hmm. in terms of I, I love the psychology of coaching and the fact that they're combining is just very mm -hmm. exciting to me. So, um, yeah. Talking I about will, identity, yeah? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, I would love to do, I would love to do that. But I'm being quite picky about what I do because I really want to preserve the client voice. To me, that's, that's so important. And I don't think it, you know, if you're a corporate organisation, um, and you're going out to get a coach, I think you want definitely to be uh, comfortable that who you're choosing um, is is the right fit. So I think there's some way, that you've got, but it's very confusing for a client at the moment to understand what does it mean if you're AC versus EMCC versus ICF? What does that mean to me? I don't mm. know. And I, I don't think there's enough consideration of their viewpoint and their perspective and and how to help them understand how to how to kind of validate one mm. coach versus another. Yeah. So yeah. Clients generally don't care, right? Whether you're accredited with this or with that body, or whether you're a member versus accredited, or whether you have nothing to do with professional bodies. What they care about is whether you can help them and whether they trust you. And mm. for some, if for some it does make a difference whether you're accredited or a member, um, in order to trust you. But yeah. for most, I don't think it it plays a particular role. But it's interesting with new generations coming through, whether that perspective might change hmm. um, and whether they will be looking for more evidence. Well, it's an opportunity to set yourself apart. And it's super interesting to point out that what's for the client here and what's for the coach. Because mm. I, I can see that, that, you know, uh, there's coaches out there who I, I want to be part of a professional body because I think they're good for the profession. And they keep coaches committed to keeping mm -hmm. their clients in mind. They keep coaches committed to best practice. Mm -hmm. their coaches are forced to do continuous professional development, which many coaches do because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the coaches with a professional body can only uphold their accreditation if they do that. So yes. I think it's a good thing for the client as a concept in general. Um, but also it can feel doctrinated, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, there is an authority there. And it's interesting to see the different uh, competency frameworks and the promotion of supervision, for example, at the moment. I really, really appreciate it. And I think they're doing a, a good a good service to the coaching industry, but it can also feel quite limiting if you don't agree with them. Mm, I've, I've just applied actually to do my supervision course um, with the primary aim of kind of self-development within my coaching, actually, rather than becoming a supervisor. 
But just going back to um, professional bodies, um, I was talking to the IRCM because I was exploring all the different bodies that are out there. And did you have you heard of the IRCM? IRCM? No, yeah. I don't think so. What does that stand for? Well, it's the uh, International Regulation of Coaching and Mentoring. They are a body that is um, uh, um, basically in in charge of regulating coaching that is their remit to regulate coaching now they're not quite there yet but they're supported by the government to um create that um space but none nobody's heard of them and you know they, they, there's not um that kind of sense that we're going down a, a route into regulation at all but you know there is a, a body that is looking at that that you know how do you regulate the industry um and you know all the kind of counseling and therapeutic industries have ended up going down that way and i guess you know is that is that what's going to happen with coaching and mentoring maybe it is i think it depends i mean coaches go further and further into therapeutic territory uh, if we wanted to call it that so the i think the regulation becomes increasingly important as coaches work with more and more vulnerable clients you yes. know because then really a body needs to step in and protect the client with coaching when we work with people who are quite resourceful and whole and we do them a disservice or you know we do something like they're just not going to come back so they didn't yeah. really need as much protection but i think now that coaching branches out into doing uh, quite a lot much deeper work you mm -hmm. know um i th i think it's it's quite important but like I can see how it's also limiting those who didn't uh, spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, pounds, whatever currency uh, in their coach training. And yeah. they do fantastic work with people, you know, because mm -hmm. they read a lot and they did a lot of training and they've done, they have a lot of experience working with people and they're just naturally very inclined to being very curious and holding fantastic space. You don't mm -hmm. need the coach training in order to do some fantastic coaching. Mm -hmm. But also, there's a lot of people who take a lot of risks. So it remains an interesting debate. Thanks for your, for your comments. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, if someone asks you about the difference between coaching and therapy, what do you tell them? Um, that's a very good question. What do I tell them? Um, I, it's very interesting because I'll tell you why. Um, I was working with someone recently who I know was seeing a therapist. And so it was really important that we kind of contracted. Um, and I haven't done much of that before. So um, it was really um, interesting to know. Yeah, we had a couple of breakthroughs as a coach and I, I i wasn't expecting that because i was um in a way i was expecting the therapy to be doing the hard work and me to kind of be uh you know just supportive um so it was very interesting to realize that actually you can have powerful breakthroughs in coaching with someone who is um, attending therapy so in order to answer the question <laughs> um about the the what do i say to someone um, you know, I don't think I've actually had that conversation other than to signpost, this is coaching and this is what I understand coaching to be. I am not your therapist, so I'm not here to try and look back into the past about why you are where you are today. I'm much more future fo focused 
um, and looking at how we can use all the tools that you've got to look forward. So I, I kind of do it based on time, I guess, more than anything, and, and try and sort of say that um, therapy is much more about looking at the source and origin of issues and coaching is more about looking forward as to um, how you can how can you use your tools to to have the most fulfilled life so that's how I do it <laughs> cool thank you um, do you notice any current or future trends um, that might be uh, worth worth uh, that might be interesting to you anything that you notice in the in the coaching profession underway or perhaps on the horizon Well, I obviously there's um, there's quite a, a growth in in team coaching, um, which I think is is really important. Um, but as you say, you know, generations with their um, uh, more kind of search for meaning and, and value. I think there's um, a lot more space for us to kind of work um, with these youngsters on life values and appraisal and legacy etc i think there's there's more that we can do and i honestly believe that earlier you can do it the better life will be when you get to retirement and that transition will be a lot easier so i think there's there's more that we can do with youngsters now i think they're more open um, to have those those conversations so i would like to see hr looking much more at um, looking at the whole person um, at work rather than just the person who presents at work um, and helping them figure out fits, et cetera, um, so that later on they're equipped um, to know what they might want to do um, come retirement. But I do think um, there are lots of things um, like retirement courses, you know, that we've got an aging population and, you know, by 2050, About 25% of the UK will be over 60. So, you know, we've got um, with that in mind, then I would like to see there to be more retirement courses and more focus on on how we handle that transition in the most sensitive and graceful way that we can. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to see that, too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Next one as well, without breaking confidentiality, obviously. Um, can you tell me about your most memorable client? Could be uh, related to the retirement space, uh, the retirement coaching. Could be any other client as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Most memorable client. I think it was probably the one that I've already mentioned, to be honest, because um, it sent me off down this journey of understanding the self, and it was that real shock and and a realization that I had a completely different view of myself to she. The, the one that she held. And so, you know, it's that real recognition of how much your clients can teach you. And I'm forever grateful for her for taking me down that journey into an area which I find personally very satisfying. So, yes, I think I've already mentioned her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love the amount we learn from our clients. It's amazing. Um, they often don't, don't realize how much we take away from the work, I think. You know, it's very, it's very interesting you say that because at what point have I told her 
that she's done that. I don't think I have. So mm. I will make a note to do that. <laughs> I, I tend to make an effort at the end to just appreciate the client and how much I've taken from that and the, mm. the stuff that's not really appropriate to bring into the space or it's not helpful to the client necessarily. Sometimes it is, you know, sometimes mm. it can be really important that they know that this is a two-way relationship, but it mm. depends on the context. But I, I tend to make an effort at the end to just, uh, you know, share some of my experience is about uh, how how valuable this was to me as well and what I'm taking away because I think it helps clients to feel really connected with us and with mm -hmm. the work as well. Of course, yeah, agreed. Mm. Um, have you ever had to stop working with a client uh, part way through the coaching agreement? Part way through, out of my choice rather than their choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no. Um, I've recontracted, but I haven't stopped. No, maybe I should have done. Oh, no. interesting. <laughs> no, but I, 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 I guess I consider myself quite an adaptable coach. Yeah. Um, I'm quite comfortable putting on lots of different um, hats. And, um, you know, I, I will only go as deep as my client is comfortable to deep, but I'm quite prepared to go very deep. Yeah. Um, but I'm also quite happy being, you know, very kind of planning and, and practical. So um, I, I think it's perhaps my ability to adapt that means that yeah. I, I don't have that situation arising. Um, I am, I do note that sometimes I have to recontract. Um, but other than that, no. Obviously, clients have chosen to stop coming to, to coaching at points, mm. but not through my own choice. Right. Thank mm -hmm. you. And uh, lastly, and feel free to take a moment to think about this. Uh, if you could take over the screen of any person or group of people, including the whole world. So it could be the whole world, could be a specific group of people or a specific person. And you're just in front of them, you know, whether they have a device or not, you know, um, and you have their undivided attention for a minute. What would you tell them and why? What would I tell them and why? I, I guess I would, I guess I'm assuming I can talk to people that are dead and alive. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would probably um, send my appreciation to Mr. Frankel and um basically thank him for um really a theme that has run throughout my own life and you know when i've been in my own personal situations which have been very dark and, and miserable how he has helped me to um see the positive in in everything and i think um i wouldn't class myself as a positive psychologist necessarily but i do think his perspective has had a, a profound impact on the way I see things and the way that I can bring energy to bring myself out of, uh, you know, tough situations and other people out of tough situations. So I do feel like his, um, his book has, has been such a profound impact on my life. So yes, it would be him and I would be a thank you. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Definitely. <laughs> what, who would you say? 
Oh, I think I might answer that at some point. It varies on the day. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Today, I would probably send a message to all becoming parents, and uh, uh, so that they they to talk to each other about this transition. You know, okay. Because is there uh, some a reason for that? Yeah, we're we're expecting in uh, oh, February. Congratulations! So congratulations. we've just we've just had a session with our doula yesterday, uh, <laughs> and just you know started talking about things, and we talk a, a lot, but like I, I think it just. Uh, um, strengthened uh, the importance of like um, having conversations about the transitions uh, mm. transition into being parents you know not yeah. just uh, birth but particularly what happens after the birth what are your hopes and fears you know what's who, who am I going to be afterwards yeah. and I think uh, having those conversations also with my own coach uh, is an it's an important part so yeah being when as uh, transitions uh, and uh, this session uh, being very present, I think that's a message I would send to parents. Mm, that's wonderful. And, and you will learn so much from yeah. becoming a parent. You will learn more than you thought was possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that. And at the same time, I know that I have no idea. <laughs> so oh. thank you. Um, where can people find you and your work? Or are there any, any projects you want to tell people about? Yeah, so um, I um, think probably the best place to point everyone is to www.north52.com. Um, and there's a dash between the north and the 52, which is very important. Um, and basically, uh, yeah, as I say, I'm working with two colleagues. There's a bit about um, my profile on there if anyone wants to find out any more, but um, a bit about the work that we do. But also um, we're really looking at... Um, some specific areas of coaching and mentoring and how we can enhance kind of what corporates offer um, mm -hmm. to their colleagues and retirement will be coming on there shortly um, as one of the um, the tools that we will be be offering. Um, so yeah, if anyone's interested in, in anything to do with transitions, particularly to retirement for me, um, then yeah, that's the starting point. I love that. Thank you so much, Tessa, for taking the time to talk to us today and uh, share your research. I'm sure there's been a lot of thoughts uh, running around uh, as people have been listening to this. Uh, if anybody's out there, if you're out there and you, you want to continue the conversation, you can do that in a couple of spaces. I've dropped a couple of links wherever you see this podcast so you can follow it up uh, because this is not just a conversation between Tessa and I. Uh, we want this to be a conversation for the community so that mm -hmm. other people feel part of this conversation and whether you want to share your thoughts or not uh, you know I always say the more we talk the more we learn and uh, there are spaces out there where we as coaches can get together have these conversations share our experience if you're in a different culture you're doing transition coaching particularly into retirement I'm sure Tessa would absolutely love to hear from you definitely yes um, if there's researchers out there who want to do this or if you want to take part in more research um, you know reach out maybe there's some opportunities uh, maybe there's somebody who wants to do uh, some research into this maybe there's other coaches who do this who want to figure out what's the right kind of tool or what's the right kind of process what can an existential lens offer my work perhaps uh, mm -hmm. let, let's have that conversation so brilliant it's been a pleasure thank you Tessa thank and you goodbye. bye okay thanks for listening to another episode of talking about coaching I really appreciate your time and I hope we were able to spark some interesting thoughts for you I'm always keen to hear what people are taking from these sessions, so if something shifted for you or your practice, it'd be really lovely if you left a comment or drop me an email at 42 at existential.coach. 
If you'd like to join or continue the conversation, you can do so in our Talking About Coaching community, currently hosted on Facebook. I believe strongly in the generative effect of coaching. And so the purpose of this podcast is to help coaches be better coaches, to give back to the community by sharing what we know, and to generate even more knowledge and connection the best way we know how, through conversations. If you wanted to contribute to this mission, there are a few options. A positive review of the podcast will make it more visible to other coaches. And in turn, I think it will benefit not just them, but their clients, their workplaces, their communities, and the world as a whole. Telling a colleague or a friend about what we do here, uh, perhaps sharing the link to this or another episode with them, I believe that's probably the most powerful way of spreading the word. And you can also support the podcast on Patreon which will help us to produce more episodes in more regular intervals. So far, it's been very much a labor of love, and I'd love to get to a point where we can turn down paid work in favor of recording another episode. And speaking of which, there are plenty more episodes available, both long-form deep dives into specific topics, approaches, or people, as well as much shorter conversations where we discuss very specific questions from new and from experienced coaches. So have a browse and see if anything piques your interest. And feel free to send us a question or suggest somebody that you think we should talk to. We'd love to hear from you. Now, that's it for today. Once more, thank you for listening and see you again soon.